This is an extended bonus episode of Season 3 of Catalyst, an investigative podcast from KXAN News and Nexstar Media Group. I'm Josh Hinkle. For the last several episodes, we've been digging into the problems surrounding access to mental health treatment in Texas jails and state hospitals. Now, for in-depth analysis of these issues and how they could impact you, we sat down with one of the leading experts in our area, Karen Reynes, the Executive Director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness Central Texas, NAMI. So there's about 700 affiliates in the United States, so we're the local affiliate here in the Central Texas area. We provide all kinds of classes and support groups for families and individuals living with mental illness, but then we also do a lot of work in the larger community providing education, training, support. We train uh, law enforcement officers. We're in schools, workplaces, and faith communities as well. Really trying to provide education to help people better understand what the challenges are of living with mental illness and how to support people who are. You know, when people are navigating mental health issues, because there still is so much shame and stigma around this particular health issue, I think many times people feel isolated. They don't know who to talk to. They're not comfortable talking to the typical people they might talk to, their neighbors, their pastor, you know, whoever that might be. So we become this really safe place where they can call, get information. Many times we're, what we're doing is simple things like just connecting them to another family member who can also just affirm and support them and say, yeah, you're doing all the right things. So by providing that kind of space, we just make sure that families and individuals know that they're not alone as they're navigating what can be really serious health issues. So we're talking about competency restoration, and I think that's a confusing topic for a lot of people, maybe something that a lot of people haven't even heard about. So competency restoration is basically the situation where if you have someone who has a serious mental illness who's, who's basically encountered the criminal justice system, so they've been arrested perhaps for some action, um, and it is clear that this person has a mental illness, they've probably done an assessment. So at that point in time, there has to be an assessment as to whether or not this person actually is capable of understanding what the charges are and how to actively engage in their defense. So if you've got someone who was arrested in the midst of psychosis and they think they're Jesus or they think that the FBI is following them or they're having any other kinds of delusions or you know they're just confused in all kinds of ways, there's no way that they have any sense of what the charges are or how they might actively engage in their own defense. So um, legally, there are statutes that have been put in place that make sure that this individual can be restored to competency so that they can be in a situation where they actually do understand the charges and then they can actively work with their lawyer to defend themselves in all of this. So that's the whole idea behind this is someone who can't even understand the charges, certainly can't participate in their defense. And legally in this country, we have a constitutional right to be able to defend ourselves. David Barrera, our investigative producer, he's here with us also, and he has really been researching this topic for many months. Why was this something that interested you? Well, initially we got a list of inmates in the Travis County Jail, and we sorted them by date to see when they first went in, and we realized there were people that had been in there for years, over a decade, in one case, 20 years. So I started looking into why these people had been in a county jail for that long, because a county jail is not the place for someone to be for, for years and years. And I found out, uh, as I did research on each one, that a lot of them were found incompetent, and they were still in the state hospital. So 
that's how we initially got in, into looking at it and we started talking with mental health professionals who said, yeah, this is a, actually a big issue. There's um, a backlog in the state hospital system. People aren't able to get into the state hospitals. Um, and then in some cases there are people that are stalled in this competency restoration uh, status for years and years and, and they never get out of it really. And then when we started looking further into it, finding cases to kind of profile and, and center our reporting around, we found a Don Castaneda's case out of Comal County. The idea of competency restoration, is it something that you encounter with your work very often? I think that we encounter families that are navigating the system and that that's where they are. And I certainly know that we encounter families that are really frustrated by that process um, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, um, which is that many times people get stuck in the system because um, we don't have enough um, capacity in terms of um, state hospital settings in order to ensure that people can do that swiftly. I mean, the idea is that you would be able to restore somebody to competency quickly. So one, that's a big assumption that you're making because depending on how ill someone is and keeping in mind that if they're at the place where they've legally done something um, and that they are probably in the midst of psychosis and they're seriously ill, like they are probably in stage four of their particular health situation, you don't restore someone to wellness overnight or even within a matter of days when they are in that kind of state. So we certainly talk to families who are navigating those systems. I think one of the things that we find is probably the things you have discovered in your own research, which is that it is a complex issue in which there are no easy answers. And so we often find families that are very frustrated and overwhelmed. The other place where we intersect with this is that as, a, as an organization who's also involved in advocacy, I've had the opportunity to be very involved in the Austin State Hospital um, brain health system redesign, right? So I sit on the steering committee for that, and one of the work groups that I'm currently working on is the competency restoration work group. Because part of that system redesign, it's not just about building a new hospital, but it's about how do you change the system so that you can ensure that you're addressing all of those reasons that we are where we are with these long waiting lists. How do you back it up and to really look at what are the systemic causes for those kinds of situations? So I think, yes, providing resources and information and support to families who are navigating this, but then I think the other important work is to be a voice for that as we're trying to implement some systemic change. You have encountered families who feel like the jail system is the last resort. They've tried everything else and their loved one just needs some type of help for their mental illness. And they've come to the point where a crime has been committed so they feel like my loved one is going to get some help finally in jail. But, you know, as we've discovered, they get stuck and it's not an easy process to get out sometimes. No, and many times all that being in a jail setting does is exacerbate actually those mental health issues because jails were not created to be mental health facilities, right? And so they are ill-equipped to do that. And I think sheriffs across the United States and certainly here in the state of Texas are lamenting the same thing. We're just like, we're ill-equipped for this. We don't know how to do this. We're not prepared for this. So you certainly have sheriffs and certainly the people that actually work in the jails responding in the same way. It's like we're ill-equipped for this. So no, it very likely exacerbates situations as well. So many times what happens with individuals who have serious mental illness is some of them develop what we call anisognosia. 
So it is an amnesia to your mental health issue. So you can ask a person sometimes who has schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or any number of mental health issues, and they are far, far along in that process and, and are untreated, and they will tell you that there's nothing wrong with them. They have no um, insight um, that they actually have a mental illness. So what happens then is that they refuse treatment many times. And that's sometimes the families that we're working with as well, is that they're frustrated because they can see that their loved one is deteriorating. They can see the decompensation that's happening. There's nothing that they can do because this is an adult who you can't require them. We can't impose treatment on a person. And yet they don't have any sense of that they have an illness. Up until age 18, um, if I have a child who has any kind of health issue, they have cancer. Um, I, as a parent, you know, make those health decisions for my child because a 10-year-old isn't competent to make those decisions for themselves, right? I have to make those decisions in terms of that treatment because I recognize that if they don't receive that treatment, they could die if they don't receive that treatment, okay? So um, what we have in the situation with adults living with mental health issues who are in that place of having anisognosia or refusing treatment is families who love and care for them and see that they have deteriorated to the place where they're living on the streets, where they're you know, completely delusional. I mean, just imagine the heartache of those families of watching someone that they love and care for so much deteriorate in that way and not be able to do anything because this person has a certain level of rights which make it impossible even though they're not competent to make that decision for themselves. That person is literally, I have families that say to me, I am watching my 20-year-old son die. In some way, he's gonna end up in some situation in which he gets shot or he continues to, you know, he's out on the street and someone beats him up or any number of things that can happen in those situations in which he ends up, he's slowly dying and there is absolutely nothing that I can do. And basically in that situation, that adult is unable to make those kinds of decisions for themselves. So I think it's a really interesting concept because there is some, division around this. I mean, has caused some divisive um, conversations for those of us that are in the mental health world between folks who are peers and then folks who are family members. And part of, I think, where we're coming at this from is from a place of fear, because I think it's important to understand how we got to where we are today. And some of this is historical stuff, right? You, you guys know this already, that in the 50s and the 60s, we did this deinstitutionalization, right? Because actually what we had done is the pendulum had swung so far. We had people that were institutionalized for years and decades of their lives when actually they might have been able to receive adequate treatment in the community and have been able to live out in the community. I mean, the numbers are one in five, and even with serious mental illness, are one in 25. I mean, people can receive a certain, um, can get to that place of wellness where they're still able to live independently, and I see this all the time. There's a young man I know who lives with schizophrenia. He has his own apartment. He just finished up and got his associate's degree at ACC, right? It's not all bad news, but people have to get early treatment, the right level of treatment, engagement with their parents, I mean, and their families. I mean, there's all kinds of things that have to play a part in that. But we went from this high level of institutionalization to then saying, you know, we ought to be providing more of this treatment and support out in the community. I mean, that made sense. 
But the problem is, is that we swung in the opposite direction because we said what we were going to do as communities was we were going to provide community-based treatment for folks, and we didn't do that. Instead, we unlocked all the doors to mental health institutions and said, people should not be institutionalized. Yes, that's true, unless they're very, very ill and need that. Um, but we didn't provide that community-based you know, services. We didn't ever fund that. So here's the reality is someone living with a serious mental illness many times needs wraparound services in order to be able to live well in recovery. They probably need supported employment. They're very likely to need help with housing as well. Um, depending on their state, they might need some additional support in just sort of navigating the health issues around that. You know, someone to help support and making sure that they're taking the medication that they need. They need ongoing treatment because these are chronic lifetime health issues. So there's all these wraparound supports that need to happen and we didn't provide that. So instead what we said is, okay folks, go to it. And so where people have ended up is in jail. Because those, by the nature of the fact that people who are not well and living with serious mental illness and are either undertreated or untreated, that untreated mental health issue sometimes can manifest itself as delusion, which leads to some of the most common reasons that people end up in jail because they have a serious mental illness. You know what the most common thing is? It's trespassing. Because somebody tries to get into some place because they're convinced that's their house. Or they're convinced that they need to get into that place because someone is uh, needing help in there and that's why they're trying to break into some place. It's trespassing. They, these are minor situations. But then what happens is, so here's this person who's delusional in the midst of psychosis and thinks this is my house and they walk into someone's house without knocking or anything, and the people there freak out. They call the police. The police comes and recognize this person has a serious mental health issue. They arrest them for trespassing. They end up in jail. Oh, this we need to move this person to competency. Um, there's no place to do that um, because what you need is a, a, a space for mental health treatment adequate, and there's no place for it, so we keep them in jail where they only deteriorate more because those are not places for them to get help. So it's a really complex situation, I think that part of what needs to happen is we have to swing that pendulum somewhere into the middle. Because as someone once told me, 180 degrees from sick is still sick. So the fact that we were institutionalizing, you know, thousands and thousands of people that didn't need to be institutionalized, that was sick. But the fact that the pendulum has swung in the other direction, and we are now housing those people in jails, that we've criminalized a health issue, that's also pretty sick. We have to move someplace in the middle and it's a very complex because you have to change policies and systems to make it work. And you have to be looking at other issues like housing, employment, all of these things have to play a part. And moving to this, to this place where we are no longer treating mental health as a crime because that's currently what we're doing. Um, I appreciate that you guys are bringing this to the surface because the reality is we see it all the time. And this is what I like in it too. We're standing on the shore and what we're seeing people is, is like the case that you mentioned, is people who are drowning. It's, the, it's like a river, it's a rushing river and people are drowning. And we're reaching into the river and we're pulling people out and we're trying to help them as best as they can. And while we're, we've barely been able to help that person and resuscitate them, there's somebody else rushing 
and you're just you're just keep reaching in there and you keep pulling people out to try to save them when the reality is what we've got to do is go upstream and figure out where the heck is the hole in the bridge so people stop ending up in this river and the river has become this torrent. I mean, when you look at the numbers and see the vast numbers of people that are currently in our jail system, because minor, oftentimes, issues like trespassing has gotten them there, it's really, it's a shame. As a community, we should, what we ought to be ashamed is not of mental health, but of how we are treating people who are living with serious mental health issues. The state of Texas is like 51st in access to treatment. Mental Health America just put out a report looking at all that data. We're 51st in access to treatment. Um, it, people with living with mental illness, we're like 50th in the country in terms of people being, um, numbers of people uninsured who have a mental illness. I was looking, doing my own research, and it's like, who's doing anything different? Um, and I thought it was interesting that actually Minnesota has made this move. Their Department of Human and, um, Services has moved toward basically saying, we're not doing competency restoration anymore. That's not our job. And I think it's very interesting because when you look at competency restoration, it is not, it's a criminal process. And the only reason that we have statutes in place, it's to get people to the system so that they can defend themselves. It's not a system that cares about people. You see, if people aren't receiving, that's why I don't actually really like that we call um, jails our, you know, our, our biggest mental health facilities. Well, they're not. They're jails that happen to have a large population of people living with mental illness, you know, jailed in them. But the reality is that the systems were not created for to serve people. It's not a person-centered approach. It's an approach that's centered on the legal system. Like, let's get people through the legal system and let's make sure that their legal rights are addressed. But what about their human rights? We're not addressing the human rights issues that are currently in place. Minnesota is currently looking at this and basically saying, we're just not gonna do it anymore. We're, we're not gonna do this process anymore. And I think they're then having to look at how do we create situations in which we are not um, focus on competency restoration, but we're looking upstream. They're looking at how do we address these issues earlier on in the process so that when we have somebody with a mental health issue coming in, can we treat it as a human rights issue and treat the person instead of the crime, which then changes the perspective of how you're looking at it. It's still really complicated and there's not simple answers, but I love the boldness of that approach, right? To just say, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. This is, we're the Department of Human Services and that's not our job. Our job is not to push people through the criminal justice system. Our, our job is to care for people. We provide health and human services. And so I think it's a pretty bold move. It's, I think it's gonna be very interesting to see how that manifests itself and how it plays itself out. In Texas, competency restoration most often happens in state hospitals. Texas has, what, 10 of them? Mm -hmm. What we're seeing with David's research is that a lot of people aren't getting to the state hospitals in the right amount of time, so they're getting even more mentally ill, mm -hmm. and their situations are getting even worse, and it's more difficult to get them through the justice process even once they get to the state hospital. What are you seeing with that aspect of it? Like you said, the state hospitals have the wait time, so there's one 
part of it at the beginning where these people are stuck in jail before they can get to the state hospital and they are, like you said, decompensating and, and falling apart more mentally before they can get to the state hospital. And then we're seeing people who finally get a spot at the state hospital. They go there, they get treatment and medication and they improve. Then they're sent back to jail. Well, their case can only uh, go as fast as the criminal justice system will allow. If they have a serious charge, it can be a really long time. And so we've seen cases of people decompensating and falling apart again. And then they go for a second loop through the system. And so no matter how quickly the state hospital can open up a space, there's still the criminal justice system and the jail stay that cannot be um, quickened. Yeah, and what we know is that there are people that are incarcerated for trespassing and they end up you know, a, a potential charge that potentially they would serve very little time for, and they end up spending more time in the system and jailed to, uh, to, to get to that place of competency than they would have ever had to have spent if it were just the focus on the crime itself, right? If you look up the word crazy, which I don't like using that word because in relation to mental health issues, right? Because the number one, the top definition for crazy, if you look in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is flawed. So from my whole perspective, we should never be referring to people as crazy because what we're saying is that they're flawed. You wouldn't say somebody who has cancer is flawed. You know that they have a health issue. So I'm pretty much against using that word, right? But you know what? You want to know what's crazy is this whole system. That's what's crazy because it's so incredibly flawed that, again, just as you named, you've got people who are on that list for a ridiculous number of days and years potentially when what we really got to do is again look at the whole system and how it is that we're addressing these issues earlier on. Treatment Advocacy Center is a, a organization, a nonprofit organization that's really looking around these issues of particularly one of their um, focus is really around assisted outpatient treatment also known as AOT. Okay, so assisted outpatient treatment is this notion of how do we engage in the criminal justice system in a way in which we use um, sort of non-punitive civil courts to, um, to really engage people with treatment. So someone, you know, does a minor trespass and they come to a court that's utilizing assisted outpatient treatment and that judge says, hey, instead of sending you to jail, what we'd like for you to do is to, um, to get treatment. And as part of that, it's not just, oh, we're going to medicate you, which I think that's always the fear, right? That it's always focused on medication, but that actually we're going to have a whole team of people that are going to work with you. So there's a social worker, there's a therapist, there's um, somebody who's a peer, someone who's a fellow peer, someone who's kind of really helping you figure out what are the next steps you want to take and really engage you in that. And yes, some of that is treatment. The expectation is that you will engage in treatment. And so there have been some good results that we've seen coming out of that. Actually, um, San Antonio um, uses AOT. And so I do know that here in the Austin area, Integral Care, the local mental health authority, has applied for some grant funding um, because there was a new grant issued that um, two 
bring AOT to Travis County, for instance. And so I think it's interesting to look at those kinds of mechanisms for engaging people in treatment. The reality is I think part of the reason that AOT works when these kinds of programs are being used is because it really engages people. They have a support system that really looks at the whole person, not just at the health issue, but looks at what are all the supports that this person needs, including things like housing. I didn't mention housing earlier. So um, I think that's an interesting concept in looking at how do we address these issues earlier on in the system. But from my perspective, what a great investment. Because what we know is if you're really looking at bottom line numbers, the cost of caring for people in jails and state hospitals is so much higher than it would be if, what does it look if you bring that person to wellness and then make sure that they've got supportive housing and all these other pieces in place that ensures the potential for them to really recover and be engaged back in their community and be productive members of the community because they're no longer in stage four of their mental health issue. Um, so it requires a great deal of, of funding to make something like that work, right? But I think we've got to be looking at all kinds of innovative ways to approach these issues so that people don't get to that place. I think one of the other big issues when we look at this, where again, people may not make the, the connection, but I think one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is the issue of the mental health workforce. We don't have enough psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatric nurses in the state of Texas. So it's very interesting, not as much of an issue in Travis County. So when I hear judges talk about like being able to get uh, an evaluation to determine that someone does need competency restoration, it's supposed to happen within 30 days in the state of Texas. What I hear judges in Travis County say is, we can usually make that happen within 10 days in Travis County. That someone that someone's incarcerated and they say, oh yeah, this person needs a competency restoration evaluation, um, and then we're able to connect them with a psychiatrist to do that evaluation it might happen in 10 days. But when you talk about folks in surrounding counties, you go to Burnett County or Caldwell County, where many of those counties, they're lucky if they have two psychiatrists in the whole county. Um, that takes much longer. They're, many times what they're telling us is people come to the jails and sometimes it takes us four to six weeks or longer to even like trigger the, oh, this person needs an evaluation. And then many times, man, they're bumping right up against those 30 days and only because they're statutes that are forcing it. So I think it's really important to recognize that, that when we're talking about that broken bridge, that one, that's one of the big issues that we have, is not enough folks working in mental health to ensure that that process is smoother. So that competency restoration, if we had more folks working, like we'd be able to figure out right away. And then you talk about state hospital systems. Not only are there many things that are not working in the state hospitals, one being that they're so old and dilapidated that basically the state legislature had to commit to doing something about that because you had a report back in 2013 that says this is a crime. <laughs> this is wrong, right? The Cannon Report said you've got to fix these hospitals. But then even within those hospital settings, they're constantly struggling with being able to have psychiatrists that they can um, you know, employ and psychiatric nurses and all kinds of folks within the mental health workforce. It's very complicated because there's not one singular solution. You have to look at the whole system to really say, what are all the things that, that impact competency restoration? So there's statutes in place. Do we have to change some of that? But then systemically, what are the things that we have to change in jail settings? How do you restore someone's competency? Yeah, if you are really caring for the person and you're not focused on 
um, criminal issues, right? You're not focused on the system, the criminal justice system. In order to really move someplace, someone to a place of competency, you really do need, um, many times it's gonna require medication. And early on when someone is in a state of not really recognizing that they even need the help, then many times that's going to have to be um, um, required. In other words, it's not by their saying, yes, I want to receive this kind of treatment. But almost always it's some sort of medication to stabilize them. And then definitely therapy, but then also a therapeutic setting. You know, I think having done tours of jails it's heartbreaking to me as, as a family member um, to see the situations that people have to be placed in in jail settings. They're not therapeutic settings. They're not, you know, you're putting somebody in a padded jail with a drain in the middle of the room. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not good situations. It's not a place any of us would want a loved one to be in. Because what you need is therapeutic settings. Um, and when many times what the therapy involves is not just one-on-one therapy, but group therapy, other forms of therapy, being outdoors, you know, um, you know, the opportunity to just sit quietly and just, you know, part of what we have to recognize is by the time somebody's in stage four of a health issue, like they're, it's like any stage four thing. And so what they need is a caring environment in which they can really get to that place where they are well again. And that doesn't happen many times in just a few days. I mean, you, one of the things that you mentioned, David, is the fact that people get to that place of restoration, right? And so many times what we're doing is in those state hospital settings, we're able to provide that for them. They're getting therapy, medication. There's courtyards so people can go outside and play basketball and they might be able to do art therapy and all kinds of other things. Maybe they're doing yoga and it's this kind of wraparound care of the individual. And then what we do is we pick them, we put them right back in jail again. And so what happens is it's the triggering of, okay, now I'm right back in this place again because I'm in a place that's no longer a therapeutic setting because that's really what they need to not only get to that place of competency, but to be able to maintain it. But instead, we're just putting somebody right back. So if we want to talk about health issues, it's like a diabetic. So figure that stage four for a diabetic might be the place where they're um, practically in a coma, right? Because that's what can happen to people who's a diabetic and hasn't been receiving treatment. They can end up in a coma. So you put them in a therapeutic setting, and you make sure that they're getting all the medications and care that they need. Um, Their whole body gets affected. So you have to really care for them as an integrated situation, right? All of the various uh, parts of their body need to be addressed. And so you're making sure that you're monitoring their carbohydrates, everything that they're eating, their medication. You're checking their blood levels every day to see where their insulin is. Okay, so you get them to that place of being well, and then you say, okay, you're well. Okay, now we're gonna move you back into this place so you can, we gotta get you back to this other place where you were before. Um, And so what if the place that you take the diabetic is a candy shop? Um, and the only thing that there is to eat there are sweets. And that's the place that you've moved them. You've already gotten them to this place where they're well again, and you're still giving them insulin, but the only thing that there is for them to eat there is carbohydrates and sweets. So what happens to that diabetic? He or she ends up right back into that place of crisis. So it's the same thing. This whole notion of moving towards talking about brain health helps us to embody this. Because I think with mental health, one of the problems is is we separate it out. We, we talk about it as though it's something that happens outside of our body, right? 
because it's acting and thinking and behavior. What if we embodied it and came to understand that it's a brain health issue and that our brain is very much impacted by all kinds of stimuli, that it's not just medication, but the reality is that, for instance, my daughter who lives in Portland where it's gray and dreary most days and she lives with chronic depression, guess what? She needs a lamp because even though she kind of likes the rainy weather and she says, it doesn't really bother me, what we're very clear on, just because you may not be bothered by that and you like walking around in the rain, your brain needs the light. So she has a lamp that she sits in front of every day for 30, 45 minutes to make sure she's getting what her brain needs. Our brain is impacted by the stimuli that's around us. So we need those therapeutic settings and being in a jail is not therapeutic at all. And so it's counterintuitive then the way we're addressing this. And that's why it's crazy. <laughs> that's why it's so flawed how we address this because it's like, okay, you're all better. Let's move you to the candy shop and all you're gonna get is carbohydrates and sweets and we just expect you to keep being better. We expect you to manage your diabetes in that setting. Well, of course it's not gonna work. So it's the same thing around these brain health issues. People just keep cycling through. It's, it's just this vicious, ugly cycle. In the midst of it all, it's people. It's people who are sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and parents. Advocates have told us that this is an issue that really lives in the shadows. It's not something that a lot of people want to talk about. There's a stigma around mental health, especially when a crime is involved. Mm -hmm. How do you get people to pay attention to this and care about it and realize this is an issue that everyone should be paying attention to and it could happen to any family? Yeah, I feel like we've got to be doing three things right now as an organization, we have to be doing three things. We have to be paying attention to the needs of families and individuals and making sure we're providing education, support, and resources for them. So we do that. And then we've got to be doing the advocacy piece where we're sitting at tables talking about how we're changing the system. What are the things that we're doing either here locally, statewide, or nationally to change the system? And then I think we've got to be doing this other important work of educating the larger community and transforming the way we talk about mental health because we've got to get rid of that shame. We've got to change that. And I think one of the ways that we do that is that we do storytelling. I mean, you know, I often step into the space of telling my own story. And it's not because I think it's an amazing story or that I'm just super proud of it or anything. It's because I see over and over again that it breaks down barriers. Because I think it's really easy to have this notion of what mental illness looks like and it doesn't look like a family like mine. I mean, the reality is that the numbers are one in five. So if we start to just help illustrate that, that when we talk about who does it impact, it impacts all of us. Because if it's not you yourself, it's someone you know, love, or care about. So we have to understand that it's a public health issue that we all need to be caring about. If the numbers are more than five, that's a higher prevalence rate than some of the most commonly recognized public health issues, diabetes, cancer, bigger than that. But we just don't talk about it. And I think that's huge. We have to start talking about it proactively, positively, and we have to understand the ripple effects of this stuff. That it's real easy to say competency restoration stuff, that's, that's other people. That's people that are getting into trouble, bad people, whatever. It's like, it's a ripple effect. It's impacting all of us. The way the system is currently set up, we're spending a vast amount of resources in jails, in, you know, in navigating and having people navigate that, and we're not even getting them well. 
Imagine if we use all of those resources to focus on getting people to wellness instead of moving them through the criminal justice system. So that's a vast amount of resources that we're wasting there that don't need to be wasted there. And so I think, you know, part of what, again, you're seeing is that's why you're seeing so many sheriffs and folks in the criminal justice system step up to this. You have judges, you have sheriffs, you have police departments that are all saying, we've got to change the system. You have the Health and Human Services in Minnesota saying the same thing. It's like, enough's enough. Like, we we can't be doing it this way anymore because we're wasting resources on things that are just keeping people in the system instead of moving them to wellness. So I think that's part of it. We need to understand that it does impact all of us and that there should be no shame in this. And the only shame should be is that we're okay to stand by and say that it's okay for people to be treated this way, that it's okay for people to languish in jail settings without treatment. How many of us would be okay with a person who was in stage four of cancer, that they were jailed and that nobody was getting them chemotherapy or any kind of treatment of any kind. Because we need to understand that while they're in jail and waiting for competency restoration, they're not getting treatment. I'm not sure that most people understand that, right? Because you haven't done an evaluation yet. Until you do an evaluation and say, yes, this person's incompetent, you can't start that treatment process. You know, I think it's really important that the work that folks like you are doing um, in journalism, that we have to continue to elevate these stories and we have to continue to tell stories around them because if we just give facts and figures, it's real easy to dismiss that. Most of us kind of, well, we kind of glaze over when you start talking statistics and stuff. Only nerds like us that are involved in this go, did you see this statistic? Um, But I think when you tell real stories, like the ones that you're talking about, where it's real people, where it's people that are veterans who have served our country, when it's families who care deeply for this person and are trying to do all the right things and then still end up in these situations, those are the stories we have to elevate so that we begin to understand that this is something that's impacting all of us and it's impacting good people who are doing all the right things. And we should all be angry and engaged and voicing our concern about this and continuing to push for change. You know, I think it's interesting, but it's not uncommon for us when we're working with families to help them to understand that many times part of what they're experiencing is a sense of grief. Part of what these brain health issues do to our loved ones is they steal them from us. So that so for so many families, what they see is this is this is not my son or my daughter or my husband or whoever it is. This is not the person that I know anymore. It's this other person. So essentially mental illness takes that person from us. And so many times what people are navigating is this huge sense of grief over that loss and that deep desire to want that person back. And it can happen, but the process is really difficult, especially when people are not well and they are refusing treatment. And so, yeah, I think so often what we tell people is you can hate the illness that has done this to this person that you love and still love that person. Um, But yes, I mean, part of what we have to work with with families is to really help them set good boundaries for themselves to ensure that they're not placing themselves in danger when sometimes these things do happen. You mentioned your own family story. Could you share that with us? Sure. So one of the reasons I got really engaged with NAMI and the work that it does is because I almost lost my own daughter to suicide. It's now nine years ago. Learning about what it was my daughter was navigating and how to navigate the system and having a better understanding of how complex this health issue was 
helped us in lots of different ways. One, we became better advocates for her and for ourselves. But the other is then I learned how to take good care of myself. And I also came to understand that I didn't need to be ashamed. I wasn't ashamed of her, but I really was ashamed of myself as a parent. Because in my mind, we had ended up in that place because we had failed to do the things that we needed to do as parents to ensure that she didn't end up in a psychiatric hospital. So I think it was really important to us to help us navigate the system to understand we weren't ashamed. I can't, I really can't um, place enough importance on that, that piece of eliminating the shame in all of this. Like, I didn't realize what a stumbling block it was to our family until I realized that we had been living under this cloud of shame because it keeps people from reaching out for help. It keeps people isolated. It keeps people disconnected. And so... um, I think that piece is really important. And then it just helped me to understand how to navigate the system. And then what it did for me is it turned me into the advocate that I am today. Because what I realized is that that we were just one family out of thousands living in our community who were stuck in the same place. And one of the things that I came to realize is that the reason that my daughter had ended up in crisis was one thing that I really struggled with, which was that we had seen kind of little signs and things, but we had sort of ignored it because we were stuck in that shame of it. One of the things that we help families to understand is that many times we're in denial, but that it's a protective mechanism. It's not because we're bad people. It's because, oh, I'm too afraid to go there, so I'm not going to go there. So I... I became this advocate around wanting to make sure that other families started having these conversations really proactively and positively a lot earlier. You know, I think it's really interesting because um, one of the things that we know is that the earlier people receive treatment, the much better their outcomes. And yet what we know is that um, studies have shown is that there's anywhere between eight to 10 years is the average delay between the onset of symptoms and treatment. So a lot happens during that time. And if people have serious mental health issues and they start having psychosis in particular, the earlier they get treatment, the much better their outcomes. And I think this is really important to understand that people navigate this best when they're fully engaged and supported. We put a big focus on medication and treatment, and I don't want to dismiss that because sometimes that's critical to people achieving wellness, but we cannot underestimate the importance of having a whole support system of people who are helping you navigate this and then asking you, what do you want to accomplish? Because so often what happens to people when they've had that psychotic episode, and many times it happens early, like in the 20s or 30s, is people's lives get sort of shattered in that moment. And so they sort of had this sense of, how do I go back to my life? And that was true with my daughter, right? She really had this sense of, because she was in college, all my classmates are moving on and I'm going to get left behind and I'm never going to finish school and I'm, you know, I'm a failure. Like all the hopes and dreams aren't going to happen. And so, um, and they did. She graduated with highest honors from Portland State University. She's in this wonderful relationship, lives in Portland, you know, is happy as well still lives with chronic depression and chronic anxiety, but she's learned how to manage it and she lives a healthy and productive life. But in that time, she didn't have that understanding that that could happen because her life had sort of been shattered. I remember saying to my daughter, because she felt guilty about not going back immediately to college. She's like, I should just go back to school. And it's like, nope, 
we need to have you focus on getting better because here's the thing you have to see it as though you've just been in this massive car accident and broken every bone in your body so you can't expect that you're going to be able to run a marathon next week and that's what college is that's what's going back to your life often is it's a marathon like literally we have to wait for all the bones to heal and then you just have to walk first and then walk to run you know, once you walk, then maybe you can run and then maybe maybe you're going to do a 5K at some point. And then maybe there's a marathon that comes later down the line. But not now. Right now, we just have to focus on getting better. I have no doubt that my daughter would not be alive today had we not made that critical decision to say, you cannot go back to school right now. We need you to focus on getting better. And that was in, in all the things that we were smart enough about in that moment, and it was really just my gut, I can't tell you that it was any kind of real understanding. It was just my gut that said, we need you to get better however long that takes. And that's what we did. And honestly, it probably took about nine months. It was not, it was not overnight. It was not immediately. Literally, and she just started taking baby steps and went back and did a class at community college and was like, okay, I managed that. And then, okay, now I'm doing this. Okay, now I think I could go back to school full time. Um, But we had to create that space for her to do that and that support for her to do that. And it's unfortunate because I also think she was fortunate to have a support system like she did in in our case. But there's a lot of people, like you talk about this, this young man who had this fierce advocate in his mom. But honestly, there's a lot of people that get to that place and they have no one advocating for them. They have no system left anymore. And many times what happens is because people have gotten to that place where they have families that care about them but have just been overwhelmed with the fact that it's people aren't getting treatment and aren't getting the care that they need, that they sort of give up and they take a step back. And I think those are the folks that we see that end up homeless or that end up in the system. Many times they don't have a support system. They don't have advocates. I want to close with a forward-looking question. Even with the state's current plan, there will still be a shortage of beds in state hospitals. We've talked about the challenges for funding and access to resources, especially in certain parts of the state, rural areas. Our state leaders just need to stay on top of it. What do you say about that kind of daunting task? Yeah, I think we have to have state leaders that are fearless in their approach to this. You know, part of this is it requires us to think outside the box. But I think we have to understand that in order to think outside the box, we need to understand what the box is. What's the stumbling blocks to all of this? And so I think understanding that some of this is about care, so it will require us to look at that system of care. I think it requires issues about housing. Housing is a huge piece in this. I sit in a group, it's the Travis County Behavioral Health and Criminal Justice Advisory Committee. So it's advocates, uh, folks from the law enforcement community, folks from the criminal justice system. So the you know uh, county attorney, the district attorney's office, people from the local mental health authority. There's like 40 some odd of us. And it's interesting because we have these conversations around things like diversion. Like how do we go back to that intercept model and and how do we avoid them people even getting into the system and one is looking at diversion options and stuff and every single time we go back to this issue of housing like housing is a huge issue in this so yeah we need to be really bold and unfortunately sometimes we don't always have leaders that are real bold 
Um, there's a lot of fear there, and the fear, unfortunately, tends to be things about, will I get reelected if I make a decision like this? And so um, it really does require advocates like ourselves to continue to keep putting these ideas in front of folks. Um, I'm optimistic. I don't think I've ever been as hopeful as I am today. And maybe it's because I am sitting around tables where I hear conversations happening that I think, hallelujah, right? So you have a local you know, advocates that are looking at things, making changes here systemically, locally. And then you have folks, like I mentioned, I'm sitting on this competency restoration work group, who's basically a bunch of judges from this county and surrounding counties and people from the local mental health, same kind of group, right, that's all looking at all the statutes around this. And, and just literally, I'm getting a little lost sometimes because they're literally walking through the statute one piece at a time to see where are the barriers how do we make changes? I think in Texas, we have the Judicial Commission on Mental Health that's also looking at making changes around this. So I think we've got a lot of areas that are happening. I think this whole notion of the state hospital is another area that we've got to keep on, right? So we know that we've gotten some initial funding here for Austin State Hospital. We know that we're going to have to advocate for the next round of funding for that. One of the things that I'm a big advocate for in that funding that wasn't given to us the first round, so I'm hoping the second round happens, is this notion of building a 72-bed um, residential unit as well. Because I think you need that. Because I think ultimately there are people that will need that long-term residential care and we need to be providing it. But I think this whole vision of a state hospital where you really have an increased bed, so people have been frustrated by that because it's like, why aren't you building bigger hospitals? Well, what we're doing is really looking at there are more beds in our communities. We need to use them better, which requires then some innovation. Again, what's the box? We have to have some innovation in terms of private and public entities working together. How is it that some of your private hospitals might be places where we are dealing with non-forensic issues, right? So that you're using the state hospital system to be big enough to support all of the forensic needs. So I think we've got to get really creative. And I think we've got to have public officials that are bold and fearless in addressing what is, I think, one of the biggest public health issues that we've faced in a while. And what I am seeing is more openness to some of these innovations, largely because you've got public officials that really don't have a choice. They see the impact that's happening in terms of our county jails and all kinds of things happening. And the num we're all seeing the numbers. We're seeing the issues around homelessness. And then I do think it takes anybody who's listening to this and who has felt inspired at all to also advocate for the kind of change that we need in addressing not just competency restoration itself, but all of the systemic changes that need to happen in order to eliminate this ridiculous, flawed system that puts people at risk and treats them not as the human beings that they are. We want to thank Karen Reynas of NAMI Central Texas. To find out more about her group's work, we have a link in the Get Help section of our digital investigation that accompanies this podcast. Just use the toolbar at the top of the page when you go to lockedinlimbo.com. Catalyst is reported, produced, and edited by me, Josh Hinkle, along with David Barrer, Arzo Dost, and Chris Nelson.
Digital support for this episode comes from Dax Dobbs, Stephanie Dockery, Rachel Garza, Eric Henriksen, Eric Leffenfeld, Matt Mitchell, Martin Sanchez, Robert Sims, and Kate Winkle. KXAN's news director is Chad Cross, and its vice president and general manager is Eric Glassberg. <laughs>